Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks for downloading this podcast. And do yourself a favor to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. Okay, welcome to the Blue Hotel. I'm glad you're here. This is the podcast with the open mind. I love doing it. We're into episode 10 this time. With a reminder to go back anytime and enjoy the previous episodes, I'd like you to hear them all. Because each of the guests are fantastic. Each time we do a different theme too. And each episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story. Fiction mostly, steamy, always. The finale of this episode's a bit of an epic actually. The longest of the series featuring an encore presentation of a story about two young lovers with nothing better to do than go downtown and cut loose at a club where women who prefer the company of multiple men go. Now, before we slide into the episode 10 theme, on my way to introducing our special guest, let's take a second to breathe. I mean, consciously breathe. Breathing is like blinking, isn't it? Involuntary. But sometimes when we're stressed out or concentrating or in conflict or in danger, we have a tendency to hold our breath or breathe just enough to survive and not really even consciously think of it. It's the deeper conscious breathing that brings us increased wellness, ability, strength, peace, and more than anything, calm and perhaps focus, which is a great place to be and in the right frame of mind to listen to a podcast about relationships and sexuality. Welcome to it. We're going to take three big, deep breaths. Number one, big breath in. And out. And a second big breath in. And out. And finally, one more big breath in. And out. Now, let me set up the theme for episode 10. Invariably, because the goal of this podcast is to help build better romantic relationships and better sexual experiences, and ultimately a more fulfilling life, the overarching theme is always centered upon communication. It's the cornerstone to everything, if you ask me. And without it, intimacy, as defined as soul-bearing honesty, isn't possible. And communication, both verbal and nonverbal, is a key part of consent, which is something we're going to get into. And we'll delve into the world of kink and fetish. And communication is everything to those individuals interested in open relationships and polyamory. All of these topics on the table this time, and a fun little detour down the road to dirty talk. It's a favorite of mine. This is going to be fun and enlightening with thanks to a woman who leads us down the garden path, as it were. It's time to introduce our special guest.
our special guest today. She was recommended to me by our special guest on the very first episode of the Blue Hotel podcast. It was Laura Desiree who said, Jeff, you've got to have Nikki on too. Like Laura, she too is Canadian born, New York based, a sex educator, writer, researcher, and coach. Since receiving her master's degree studying the psychology of sexual dysfunction from NYU, she has facilitated hundreds of sexual education workshops in places like Planned Parenthood, New York University, the United Nations. Her writing has also been featured in publications like Mind Body Green, Cosmo, Pornhub Sexual Wellness Center. After studying sex therapy at Guelph University, she built up her coaching practice, which we'll tell you about in a bit because she can do a lot for you if you're in need of help as an individual or in a couple situation. She specializes in working with fetishes, sexual trauma, ethical non-monogamy, and the big one, the P word, pleasure. She also hosts a monthly sex trivia event in Brooklyn, New York, and facilitates workshops on dirty talk. We're going to get into that. And consent, the most important part of all of it. And sexual communication and role-playing and open relationships. Are we ever in for a treat, says the Blue Hotel welcomes Nikki Davis-Fainbloom. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Jeff. What a lovely introduction. <laughs> well, there's a lot to you, so there was a lot to that. Yeah, I would love if you would just follow me around and say that like as I meet new people. <laughs> nice. Yeah, as you enter a room, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> this must be an important person. Yes, it is. Were you born in Toronto? I was born in Toronto. Yeah, born and raised. What drew you to New York? What drew me to New York was that I fucked up my applications for all my master's programs except the one to NYU. <laughs> so I was trying to go in Canada where it's affordable, but for whatever reason, none of those applications went through. The only one that went through was NYU. So they took all my money and now I'm still here. <laughs> uh, it was a happy accident? Happy accident. And Every year I kept being like, this is it. I'm just here for school, then I'm leaving. But the magic of the city gets you. It's a magical place. You've written extensively about many things, and I've been reading your pieces. Uh, I just read one about fetish, mm. which might be a great place to start. But I wanted to start actually because Laura said, you've got to meet Nikki. And here you are. How do you know Laura? So we are actually internet friends. We were both... Uh, members who had a one time, I think she is a regular at Naked News in Toronto, which right. is just like this awesome program where they tell the news while their clothes are no longer on. So they reached out to me and they were looking for a sex educator to come on and to sort of share some knowledge with them. I think they were looking about like polyamory, open communication, that kind of stuff. So yeah, for the first time ever, I was like the one clothed person in the room. <laughs> But I got interviewed, and and it was a really fun time. Well, you bring me to, to, to opening that up a little bit, because nudity and sexuality are not the same thing. Let's talk a bit about that, because you've encountered uh, discrimination, I guess is the word, around that, right? Yeah. Well, I just think that as a society that just doesn't know enough about sex, when we see nudity, we associate it with sexuality. And I think sometimes it can be associated. There's definitely that thing where it's like when you have sex, usually there is nudity involved. However, nudity is also involved if you're like giving your aunt a bath who can no longer walk, or if you're just like feeling free in your body and experiencing the world. And I think that 
I've been a part of sort of different types of nudist communities and events. And I find that it's almost like a lot of the world is just not yet ready for it because they assume that because someone is naked, that means that they want to have sex or it's some kind of sexual uh, freedom, which again, it can be, but it can also be so many other things. And I think we need to work on normalizing nudity and making it a place where women could feel safe to walk down the street without a shirt on, because I would not feel safe doing that in our current culture. It's the way we came into the world, without clothes, and yet, which is why I like going to adult uh, uh, vacations. You know, hedonism comes to mind for most people. It's sort of the go-to, but a place where you can go and feel the air on your skin, because making love outdoors is probably the, the greatest feeling on earth. And the whole nipple thing, let's face it, Instagram, of which you and I are both a part. What's your account? Miss Bloom Sex Educator. Miss Bloom Sex Educator. And we have Blue Hotel Podcast. Uh, you know, We know that corporations are risk averse, so they don't want anything that might cause controversy. Mm-hmm. A man shirtless, no problem. A woman mm-hmm. shirtless, why? Because she has breasts that produce milk? Like, I'm not... I'm not really sure what their reasoning would be. It has to do with the size of the boob. So people that have bigger boobs are much more likely to get banned or blocked. But if someone has smaller breasts, they're like, oh, this is sophisticated. This is fine. So that's like another level of the sort of discrimination that's going on. Yeah, the more overtly sexual you're perceived to be, the more discriminated you are. Yeah, and they're like, I guess bigger boobs is more sexual, which is an interesting association. I don't know why. Intimacy. Intimacy can mean different things, one of which is being honest with your partner, being able to say who you are and what you are and what you feel and what you like and and not having judgment. And it actually strengthening and or deepening the relationship so there can be more of that. How would you extend beyond what I've just said about intimacy? So I would say the step that comes before intimacy is figuring out what you want. So, so many of us don't know what we want. Like the question, like, what are you into? could be a terrifying question when asked in the bedroom. So I think before you get to a place where you're comfortable communicating that to partners, it's getting to a place where you are in touch with yourself and you are able to separate what you truly want from maybe what you think your partner wants or what society has told you is okay for your gender or your sexuality or your identity and all that. And I think that that sort of clouds people's judgment of what they truly want. So I think the first step is really getting in touch with how you genuinely feel and what sexual acts you enjoy, what type of intimacy you enjoy. And then from there, it's sort of just gaining the tools to tell your partner or your partners or even your own body what it is you like and exploring that. What kind of a role do you think fear and or shame play in people's inability to express themselves? I think it's it's massive, specifically shame. So my niche is sort of working with folks who often have less common or unique sexual preferences. And for them, usually most of the work we do is just getting over the shame that they've had their whole lives because they feel like they have this secret. And they feel that if the secret gets out, they'll no longer be accepted professionally. Their partners will break up with them and they will be sort of deemed this unworthy person. And I think that that comes from a society that still has a long way to go in becoming sort of sex positive. And I think that it's something that we're working on as a society, but also as an individual to sort of realize that you don't have to feel shame no matter what you're into, as long as you're not hurting anyone. It's like 
working through the shame, realizing that it's not a problem with you so much as the society and finding ways to sort of explore whatever you're into in an ethical way and pushing the fear aside, I think is huge. Fear is a killer. And it seems to me every time I try to better understand why someone's being the way they're being, being rejecting, uh, being arrogant, being mean-spirited, being all the things that push us away, when Mm -hmm. I dig deeper and try to understand them rather than just run away from them, I Mm. think that they're afraid of something, any number of things. Do you think in your life you've had any fear around sexuality or relationships that got in your way? Just for the first 50 years. I realized (laughs) at a certain point that that was the barrier to real intimacy was fear of rejection. Definitely. And I think a lot of what we have to work on is accepting rejection and saying like, you miss all the shots you don't take. So by never telling anyone, yes, you're not rejected. You're not, that fearful moment won't happen, but you're not going to connect with someone in the way that would be really exciting and satisfying for you. So I think a lot of what I also work with people with fetishes is to understand that if someone rejects them, there's nothing wrong with them. That just means that person isn't interested in that act. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't keep putting themselves out there and sort of accept that rejection rejection's part of dating, even with people that are into sort of regular things. It's sort of putting yourself out there and knowing that you're not going to be a great match with everyone you meet. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It just means the connection isn't there. And that shouldn't stop you from continuing to put yourself out there, whatever that could look like. It makes me think about how much you give up about who you are as a sexual person and mm-hmm. how deep you go with your fetishes. For example, you're on the first date, second date, third date. How much do you really give up? Do you give it all up? That speaks to fear again. If I give too much mm-hmm. up too soon, they're going to run away. There's this tension and this conflict between being honest but being too much too soon. 100%. And I've worked with a lot of people who are in 10, 20, 30-year marriages and they still haven't told their partner. And it's like the longer you wait, the harder it is because your partner is going to feel like there's this whole side of yourself that you're not sharing with them. And that's dangerous. However, you're also right that I don't know if you necessarily on the first date want to be like, this is the sexual thing I really want to do before you kiss someone because that could be a turnoff if you're not in that place yet and they don't like you yet for you. So it is finding sort of that middle ground and learning to sort of read the room and know when the time is right. Let's talk a bit about this because, you know, a lot of people in the online dating world, in the Tinder world, this sort of you know, realization, I'm an adult, I can do what I want, I can have sex without commitment, I can put myself out there, and I can have sex on the first or second date. But there's some value I learned very slowly to maybe even slowing that down. What have you got to lose? If you can strengthen and deepen a relationship with somebody and have sex several dates in, where you know a little more and you're more willing to accept them for who you've discovered them to be, rather than rushing into it and then kind of getting addicted to the sex because it was good mm-hmm. and then not having all that honesty. So you continue to have this you know, supposed great sex, but you're not opening up enough. You're kind of addicted to the moment? Yeah, I think that that's possible. And part of it is sort of differentiating what you truly want and what you feel like you should want. So maybe some people, they truly want casual sex with people they don't know well. And I think that's fine as long as they communicate that with their partner and they're both on the same page. But I think personally, I think sex is better 
if I've masturbated and thought about them at least 17 times. It's like letting that build up over time. The tease, the excitement makes it so much better when it finally happens. Um, but I do think there are some differences there and there's not really one right or wrong way to go about it as long as you're honest. The word normal has been thrown around, I'm sure, in so many conversations between couples and potential couples and couples that don't become couples. Normalizing, getting rid of the word normal is probably a great yeah. idea, you know, because one person's normal is another person's. When you think of the definition of the word kink, it's sort of like an umbrella term that means you're into something that's not normal, but that's such a personalized definition. For some people, it might be not normal to have sex on like the edge of the bed instead of on top of the bed. Whereas for some people, it's like orgies with 100 people. That's where the line is. So I think like the words that we use can sometimes make people who are into quote unquote abnormal activities feel bad when in reality, it's a lot more common than you think to be into something that's not quote unquote normal. Well, let's let's go further on that because you know way more than, than I about um, the definitions and distinguishing words like fetish and kink. So dig a bit deeper for us so we understand. Yeah, of course. So fetish is an umbrella term that sort of refers to any alternative interests. So anything that's outside of more common mainstream forms of sexuality. Again, that can mean so many things. But Within that, it could be like voyeurism, exhibitionism. Sometimes they include group sex. Um, and one type of kink is fetish. So fetish is sort of more specific. And it's when someone has a specific and clear desire towards either an object, a body part, or a body action. In an earlier episode with uh, film director Lisa Rideout, she spoke of this film she directed about Sue Johansson, the great Canadian sex educator. She was on the radio at first in the 80s and then extended to television across Canada and into America. And one of the things I learned from Sue, you know, as a teenager in the 80s, mm -hmm. was that this thing I had was, quote unquote, normal after all. And, and it reminded me of a piece you wrote. Let me explain. You wrote a piece about a fetish of people being turned on by other people sneezing. And that extends to my thing, my little story about Sue is that I was listening to her show one day on the radio and and I had this thing where when I'm turned on, I do sneeze. I get mm, I, I cool. sneeze almost all the time a sneeze is related to being turned on sexually. And and Sue said, Yeah, that's a thing. And I thought, oh good, mm. I'm not abnormal. So yeah. I, I didn't ever hear that people are actually turned on by other people sneezing. Tell us more. Yeah. Well, first of all, that is an amazing thing to use with anyone in the sneeze fetish community. You're a hot commodity. That's amazing. Because often within that realm, they find ways to induce sneezing because it's sexually arousing to them. So there are, for example, peppers you can smell that induce sneezing. But yeah, I've sort of become... Uh, I don't want to brag, but I might be the world's specialist coach in sneeze fetishes. <laughs> so since I wrote that article, now... A good chunk of the clients I work with have a sneeze fetish, and I love it. It's amazing. So it kind of makes sense very logically to me where the same way, the same phase of an orgasm is sort of the phase of a sneeze, where eventually something builds up, you lose control, and then there's like a sound and a little bit of liquid comes out. So when you think of it that way, I'm like, yeah, that totally makes sense. So I've worked with a number, several clients who have this fetish to really, a lot of them have so much shame about it. And it sucks because I think it's such a like fun, innocent thing to explore. But 
they have been shamed the times they've told someone or they've been shamed even on like discussion boards sharing what they're into on Reddit. People shame them and people don't understand this little corner of the world, which is actually like a thriving community online. I highly recommend you check out the Sneeze Fetish Forum. There's just like really, really great stories um, where they philosophize about like our bigger noses leading to bigger sneezes and like all these just like fascinating conversations that take place. But a lot of the work I do with them is working to get rid of shame and then working to figure out how to tell a partner about their fetish and then specifically how can you explore it? So not all fetishes can be explored with a partner. So I have someone who told their partner about it. Their partner is fine with it, but it's just not what they're into. And I think that that's fine. Then we're sort of, I'm working with my client to figure out how can you explore this part of yourself because you're never going to fully give yourself sexually to another person. There's always going to be a part of your fantasies and your desires that are just you. So in that case, it's like, how do we explore that and still keep it fun and kinky for you if maybe your one partner or one of your partners doesn't want to explore it with you? But yeah, I really loved working with the sneeze fetish folks. They're awesome. When I sneeze, I don't have a volume control on that unless you suppress it completely. I don't believe in suppression of anything. In particular, <laughs> something as involuntary as sneezing. So it's quite loud. And mm. like, do you really have to sneeze that loud, Jeff? Actually, I, I do it. It's, I don't feel it coming on most mm -hmm. of the time. It, it's, it's there. It arrives and it's loud. For some people, <laughs> that's exactly the right volume. Everyone's got their preferences, even within the community. So it's interesting to sort of learn about how all our preferences are unique. But part of what I sort of learned about fetishes through that and just in general before that is how they really are sort of a normal reaction to the environment that people are exposed to when they're younger. So one of the most interesting studies that I read about this was that goats who are raised by sheeps are turned on by sheeps instead of goats. And that's just because that's you're turned on by whatever you see. And the same is true for humans. So it's like if you are a uh, older sibling and you witness pregnancy when you're in sort of this phase of development, you witness pregnancy, you're more likely to later on, as you become more sexually mature, be turned on by pregnancy. And I don't think that's like some weird Freudian thing about your mother, you want to have sex with her. No, I think it's just you saw pregnancy, maybe around the same time you were exploring your own desires for the first time, and then those two became linked. And I think when you think of it that way, it's like there's really no reason to feel any shame. You're just turned on by whatever you happen to see. And I think it's not always that simple or straightforward. A lot of the time, people don't remember the moment. Sometimes it feels relatively random. But I think that a lot of the time, it's just like what we're exposed to, we're turned on by. Similarly, like quicksand used to be really common in movies. And then now that they're, it's no longer cool for whatever reason, I kind of hope it comes back because I like quicksand. But now that it's no longer cool, people just don't have quicksand fetishes because they don't see quicksand. So they're, they don't eroticize it. And that's sort of just simple of us learning through our environment. What are the most common fetishes? I mean, people go to feet. Yeah. And some people are completely grossed out by feet and the rest of us find them sexy. Yeah, I think feet are by far the most common fetish. And do you know why that is? Tell me. So there's actually really interesting research. For most uh, fetishes, there's no neurobiological research behind it, but feet is the one that there is sort of a clear, interesting connection where 
in our brains, we have a somatosensory cortex, which is where basically for every part of our body, there is kind of just a sensory part of it in the brain. And how it worked out is that the genitals are right beside the feet. The theory is that sometimes like the neurons just kind of misfire and then the genitals and the feet become linked due to their proximity in the cortex. That's the one that's most easy to explain. Are there other ones that have that correlation? That's sort of the most clear one and it's the most common one. So it kind of makes sense that there's probably something neurological going on there. And do people get very specific about feet and what it is about feet that, that turn oh, them yeah. on? Some people are into like the arch of the foot. Some people prefer bigger feet. Some people prefer smaller feet. For some people, it's just the toes. They like a little toe in their mouth. Yeah, there's so many different ways to explore it too. Some people like foot jobs. Some people just want to like buy someone some nice heels and watch them walk around, which can be paired with like some domination stuff sometimes, but not always. They're like feet is like one of the most fun, easy fetishes to explore because there's so many avenues. It reminds me of the old expression that uh, we've heard all our lives, barefoot and pregnant. And pregnancy is another one. So win-win. I always say if it's not illegal and it's not mean-spirited and it's not non-consensual, what's the problem? I can't find a reason to shame someone or to demonize someone or or to call the cops on someone. And I mean, in North America, we've probably got a pretty reasonable legal system as compared to, you know, other countries like Iran. How do you feel about all of that? I feel, um, well, what came to mind when you said that was how it only became illegal to rape your wife in the 90s. So there are certain laws that even in the states where we're progressive in so many ways are kind of falling behind. And wasn't anal sex illegal for a really long time? It's like it is changing, but I think that it's going to continue to change. And maybe there are certain activities that are happening now that we're going to be like, wow, we, we didn't think that was okay. But yeah, I agree with you that as long as it's consensual, and I don't know about legal, I think it sort of depends on the laws, but as long as it's consensual and it's two adults, it gets complex. So I like to sort of separate one's desires and their behavior. So I think it's really, really hard to impact what you're turned on by. So I don't think someone's a horrible person if they're turned on by something horrible. I think that they need help and that's something that they need to work on and to not act on it. But I think that what we can ideally control is our behaviors. So there is help for those that if you're turned on by children or rape or like these things, there are sort of ways to control that through therapy. And I also think we're doing some interesting new research about like, can a sex doll that looks like a child sort of work as an outlet for these people so they don't assault real humans. So it's, it's really complicated. It's a hard one to work with, but I think it's hard to fault someone for what they desire because, again, it's like a neurological thing based on their childhood, based on their experiences. A lot of the time it's like they experience trauma and that sort of is what led to the desires that they have is like George Carlin talked about you know if if you're uh, and he was I think raised Catholic if you're yeah he was if you're thinking about going down to the corner and robbing the corner store say <laughs> save yourself the the, the, the cab fare <laughs> you make a good point about legality because we assume that things that are in our opinion um, common sense there's a law around it but there, there aren't necessarily if we think of polyamorous people, right, they still aren't legally, they can't legally be a relationship if there's three people. But I think that 
moving forward, that's something that will at some point become more normalized. We're going to talk a bit about opening up relationships and and the way to do that. And I know you can go much deeper in a, in a coaching scenario, but we'll touch on it in a yeah. minute. I also want to get into uh, what I think is just one of the greatest things people can experience, because again, it doesn't speak to behavior so much as it speaks to desire and fantasy, how you talk to each other, how you arouse one another, how you're aroused, how you express to someone what arouses you, and then deepening and strengthening the sexual relationship you have with somebody by being able to do it without shame and without fear. Talk a bit about dirty talk. Yeah, that's a huge one. And it's one of my favorite workshops to give because (laughs) everyone's so unique. And it's really not so much me giving them lines to try as much as helping them get in touch with what their unique voice is. And I think that one of the problems with dirty talk is a lot of the time people learn about it through porn because that's the only example they see. And I have nothing against porn, but I just think that it's helpful to know that most porn is made for men by men. So a lot of it is like this male fantasy of what dirty talk should look like. So sort of feel that they're role in dirty talk is to sort of copy these lines that they've heard before that are very gendered, usually involve power and all that stuff, which I think is super fun if that's what you genuinely like. But I think a lot of what people discover sort of through our workshop or just in general is that what they sort of have been using doesn't speak true to them. So a lot of the work is helping them figure out what turns you on, what turns your partner on, and where does that overlap? And how can you be genuine in the moment? So don't feel like you're copying fancy words, but like authentically from the heart, share how you're feeling because sex involves all the senses, but sometimes the clearest way to express how you're feeling is your words. So it's like, how do you connect to your re- the rest of your body in that moment and tell your partner how it feels for you? A couple quick tips is for the most part, uh, people like compliments. So you can't go wrong if you tell your partner how beautiful they look. So what about them is turning you on right now? Saying that out loud, there's no way that's not going to go well. And I also think making it personal is nice. So not not making it something they could say to anyone. Like, what is it about this person? Is it their hair? Is it their breasts? Is it their ass? Like whatever it is. Or even if you're doing the power play, instead of being like, you're a dirty slut, be like, you're my dirty slut. So make it more personal and connected. And sort of taking it slow, especially if you are exploring power, which I think can be some part of dirty talk, it could be really fun for some people, is to sort of have a conversation first and normalize talking about, hey, what words do you think might turn you on and what won't turn you on? Because sometimes if someone says something that doesn't feel right, it can ruin a whole sexual moment and you have to stop. So it's like, especially if you're saying something that you're like, oh, I don't know how they will respond. I think talking about it first is great. And I also think that for some people, dirty talk in the moment just takes them out of their experience and their body. So I'm one of those people where it's hard for me to talk too much if it's great. It Like I can, but it's like you can also talk before and that can be your dirty talk as like a tease and leading up or it could be after where you're like, what was the best part? What do you want to try next time? And that can both be sexy, but also help you learn about your partner's desire so that next time you're like, okay, this is what you like the most. Let's try that. It's the getting to know, and you can do that in text. You can do that on the phone, on the way to see somebody. You could do it in the morning, knowing you'll see them later in the day. You can do it with questions like, what did you do? And she or he says, what do you mean, what did I do? And then they make up a story about what yeah. 
complete fantasy. You kind of negotiate, don't you? Like like everything to do with a, a relationship, you're kind of negotiating and better understanding what works for you both because mm. there's a lot of assumptions made if you don't talk about it. Exactly. And I think the great part about that is you can notice what words they use to describe their body. So are they like breasts or tits? And then when you're with them, you want to copy the language that they use because you're assuming that they're using that because that's the word that they like or that turns them on. So it's a good way to kind of peek into what their vocab is like. And you can even go deeper by finding out the words they don't like and the mm -hmm. why around they don't like it. But the C-U-N-T word, uh, mm -hmm. if you're from England or you're me, yeah. um, it, it, it's not a bad word. It, it can be a positive thing in a conversation. To some people, it's a no-fly zone. The things that you mocked and hated may end up being the things you most like. Yeah, and I think that's part of experimenting. So I feel like some people say you should never, ever try something you're not sure you're going to like, but I don't agree with that. I think it's really experimenting, and sometimes there can be compromise. So when I work with people with fetishes, maybe their partner isn't turned on by balloons, and they're like, this isn't my thing. However, I'm interested in trying it as long as you try this fantasy I have. And that it can be like this back and forth where both people get to explore what they're into. And maybe you realize, hey, this isn't my thing. And then balloons are out in the future. But then at least, you know. So it's like knowing the difference between what are your sort of hard boundaries versus what are something that you're like, hey, we'll see. And then you can learn. Nikki, is there anything that came out of the lockdowns that maybe we hadn't thought of that was a real positive in this whole space? Yeah, so so many more sex toys were sold. And I think the great thing about that is a lot of couples introduced them into the bedroom as coupled toys, which was less common before. But you're, you're in the house, you have all this time. I think there were sort of two chunks of people. So some couples sort of got sick of each other and it sort of made their relationship worse. But there were also some couples that used this time to experiment, to try new things. And for these couples, their relationship is stronger than ever. And I think one interesting component of that, which I'm a huge proponent of, is just normalizing using sex toys during sex, especially if you're in a heterosexual relationship. Like most women or people with vulvas can't orgasm without clitoral stimulation. And for a lot of people, the norm is still like penetrative sex is the quote unquote main act. But I think for some people during the pandemic, they were able to experiment and realize hey, if we are going to do penetration, like, why don't we use a vibrator as well so it can be pleasurable for both people? And just sort of experimenting with each other's bodies, I think, is that what some people were able to do during the pandemic. And it seems like the most, to, to the people that discovered it, wow, mm. why didn't we think of that sooner? Like, some of these things are very practical. Yeah. Let's do that. Revolutionary. It was a masculinity that was like, uh, aren't I enough? Was that, that one was of the questions? Of, yeah. I actually had a couple clients like that. So we had to talk through like why they thought that. And eventually I was like, can your penis vibrate? No. So it's time to just like work with what you got. If you want to facilitate the most pleasure possible, that's, that's the way. And some people, so I hear, end up using their penis externally as a as a, mm. a vibrator. You you can you can use that like a vibrator. I mean it doesn't How do you make it vibrate? By using your hand and making it move. It may not yeah. work as good as a double A battery, but uh, if yeah. I have fun, try things. Yeah, exactly. Experimentation. And it's not all in porn. Although there is a lot of great porn too, isn't there? I think there is more and more lately. Like you can look up uh female owned porn companies or queer companies, I think overall those are better, but sometimes you have to pay for them. 
which I think could be worth it for some people. It seems to me, uh, having gone through just about every category known to a man and woman in the porn uh, sector, that it seems to me the most um, authentic uh, mm-hmm. looking porn, at least the feeling I get, is, is often um, um, same sex, be it female or be it male, uh, yeah. or a greater level of authenticity among those porn than hetero porn that is directed by men. Is, is that accurate to you? I think... With men on men, I've seen that a lot. I think with lesbian, I've seen both. <laughs> I've seen like a super over-dramatized version of two women hooking up where the, clearly the man was like, they're going to want this. But it's like understanding female anatomy. You're like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that feels good for you or not. Um, my personal favorite is I like when it's real couples because you can tell they actually know each other's bodies. Uh, so more of that, like uh, porn made in their houses and stuff. Yeah, and they aren't playing to the camera so much as it looks like we just happened to be peeking in on something exactly. that was happening, whether there was a camera there or not. Exactly. Uh, open relationships. You know, a lot of people have thought that's what they wanted, and maybe it wasn't. A lot of people have thought that's a no-fly zone, ended up being just right for them. Mm. There's so many ways to go about it. Give us a little bit of insight into your findings. I think that's very well put in that it's, complex and you often don't know if it's right for you even once you're trying it I've had a bunch of couples that are trying it and they're like is this worth it is it because I think it's like for it to be worth it it has to be a net positive for both people I think that the dynamic I've seen a lot that really doesn't work is when one person is really open to it and the other partner is doing it just because they don't want to lose their partner or just because they want their partner to be happy so I think pretty well without fail, most of those dynamics I've seen don't work out. Um, maybe there's a way you could have one monogamous person and one not monogamous person, but it's it's really difficult. So I think it works best when both people genuinely are interested in trying it. I think that the best way to try it is to really, really take it slow. So don't jump into dating people and having sleepovers and all that um, if you're already a couple. Because I think opening up when you're already a couple is even more complicated than starting a relationship where you're both being open because you're sort of already existing in this space where you feel like on some level your partner is yours. And it's like hard to shift that to, it might feel like you're losing part of them even if you're not. But you might be losing some tangible things like their time and some of their sexual energy and all that. So I would say just really take it slow. So I always get the couples the first step to be like, have one partner, dress up nice and go out with the intention to flirt with people. So in this night, they're not going to hook up with anyone. They might not even make out with anyone. But just how does it feel for the partner that's not there to know that their partner is flirting and is putting out their sexual energy and then talk about that before you go into having like sexual relationships with other people. I think for some people, it can also be experimenting together first. So how does it feel to try a threesome or uh, to hook up with another couple and to sort of physically be there so that can help it be less painful for in the future if they're not going to be there. But the first steps are sort of figuring out what both couples' ideal future would look like and then creating some really clear mechanisms to deal with jealousy. Because jealousy is, for most people, it's going to be there. It doesn't mean you're failing if you're jealous. I think it's a very natural human response if your partner is with someone else. But there's a lot of work to do to sort of deal with that. So to figure out, am I holding any like irrational beliefs that are getting in my way? Do I feel like my partner is going to leave me? If 
So how can they show me that that's not what's going to happen and make me feel more secure? And sometimes this can be smaller things where it's like, if there is a sleepover, the partner texts them at the end of the night being like, I love you so much. So the partner at home knows that the partner who's out there loves them and cares about them. But that's sort of down the road. But when I work with couples, the first step is really to figure out what both couples' boundaries are and how can we find a middle ground where usually both couples aren't thrilled, but it's like better than before. You know, it's never perfect. It's like, what's that middle ground where they're both okay with trying? And then from there, it can sort of open up more if that's what they want. I guess the what ifs, to your point, what if this happens, then how am I going to feel? Or what if this happens, what are you going to do? Or what am I, I guess it's, it's, it's kind of a role-playing thing, isn't it? The discussion before it even happens. Exactly. And I think the unknown is the scariest part. And I think when people are setting boundaries, it's important to set boundaries that have to do with actions and not feelings. So it's like a boundary can't be like, you cannot fall in love because that's something that you can't really help if you're going on dates and seeing people that might happen. But the boundary can be for holidays, you only hang out with me or like whatever it is. It's complicated. And the what ifs are a lot. So it's like managing the what ifs for the what if we just stay the way we are. Um, Because as we know, what's really common is cheating. So if it feels like either you're going to cheat on your partner or you can do it ethically, I think the ethical route is definitely the better way to go. You make a great point. You've got me thinking. It's almost like the fact that we're having the discussion as a couple. Honey, what's missing? Why are you thinking about this? It means something's missing. And then identifying what's missing. And maybe sometimes what's missing can be accomplished without going outside. It can be through dirty talk. It can be through kink. It can be through all sorts of things that two people can do together that they hadn't tried yet. It's not to say that you won't get to opening things up, but Mm -hmm. is that really the solution or are the things we haven't considered yet? Yeah, for sure. And I think in some cases, it's not even like anything. I think a lot of the time something's missing, but sometimes it's not even that anything's missing. It's the relationship is great. It's just they've been together for so long and they want to introduce novelty or they're just the type of person that doesn't believe that love can only be given to one person. So that doesn't mean they love their partner any less. It just means they they fundamentally, maybe as an identity, believe that the way that we've sort of constructed monogamy doesn't work for them. The old expression, absence makes the heart grow fonder. I find through my observations, particularly with couples with kids that don't end up surviving, they end up being uh, with other partners in blended families of lots of kids. And somehow that seems to work better for how long becomes another question. Yeah. Um, the, re- the reason I bring it up is when you spend, you know, Esther Perel's one that talks a lot mm-hmm. about it. When you spend yeah. that much time together in the same house, in the mm-hmm. same environment, doing the same thing on the same nights, seven nights a week often, not yeah. having as many nights out with your friends or not having mm-hmm. as many times alone or not going on holidays alone. Any of the number of things that bring you apart so you're yeah. excited to come back together. Exactly. Is that, is that kind of a big one that people face? They're just too close, too, too yeah. familiar. Exactly. That's a huge one. I was on a recent podcast talking about how it's like you don't want the same text chain where you're talking about laundry detergent and the chores. And then on that, you're like, "Ooh, I'm going to like lick your pussy so good tonight. And then it's like, how do you separate the two if you're too enmeshed in like, especially if there's kids and like a household and money, 
It's like you need to find a way to separate that from the erotic connection with your partner. And I think one way to do that is definitely doing your own thing so that you even have something interesting to talk about when you're with your partner. Because if you're with them all the time, you're not going to be that interesting. It's through going out there and having experiences and learning that you have interesting things to talk about. So that is definitely part of it. And then when you're together and having sex, switching up whatever routine you've developed and making it more interesting and maybe pushing your boundaries to try new things. Uh, Because I think we develop this sort of sexual routine we have because it's good. So there's nothing wrong with it. You probably develop the way that you both have orgasms and connect, but it's like forcing yourself to try something new is a way to introduce that novelty that can also be introduced with a new partner. There's lots of ways to do that. Yeah, there's a newness between two people that have been together forever if you nurture it, if you find a way to find that newness. There's so many distinct possibilities if you open yourself up to them. Let's talk about this for a second. I want your opinion about this. I've had this conversation with so many people and I get a variety of responses, but they aren't always uh, educators and schooled like you are. So this one, it's my belief to a certain extent that that a lot of people say, I'm just not into women. A lot of women say, I'm just not into women. It's just not for me. I just I just don't like pussy. Or guys say, I could never, I'd, I'd never think about it. I would never do it. And I always think, bullshit. Uh, you're either so repressed or afraid, which sometimes go hand in hand, that you're, you're pretending you've never entertained the idea. I always say, I think it's the conditioning of everything to do with society in your life that has brought you to that very hard line in the sand about no. Where, where, where do you fall in, in with this thought? I think it's, it's really complicated because 100% I agree with you that we are conditioned to generally be heterosexual is kind of still the main way that like you have to come out as not heterosexual. So it's still sort of implied. I think that there are some communities that are doing better, specifically the young kids now are doing a really good job of sort of pushing that a little bit and being like, how do you identify instead of assuming how someone identifies? But I think that there is a lot of conditioning that gets in the way from people exploring what they genuinely feel. However, I think that there is also this biological component where some people are just wired to be turned on by a certain type of person. And I think that some people are just straight. And I think, for example, I was raised very open-minded about sexuality. I'm a sex educator. I've been in many, many spaces. And for whatever reason, I just really, really like guys. And I'm not not into girls, but I don't find anywhere near the same level of excitement thinking about it. And I really think for me, it's not a cultural thing so much as just the way my body reacts. So I think it depends on the person the culture that they're raised in, the opportunities that they're given leads. I think for a lot of people, it's cultural stuff. And for some people, it's just the biological desire of who or what turns them on the most. In an upcoming episode, we're going to have on Marley Liss. And Marley Liss was the victim of uh, sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And Marley Liss is helping change uh, attitudes and even uh, the legal system around what happens? Is it punitive or is it restorative? Restorative mm-hmm. justice is something that she's she speaks to. So she's an upcoming guest on this podcast, and I encourage everyone to have a listen. It's a whole new way of looking at um, 
the criminal system and how mm. it relates to sexuality and consent. So mm. non-consensual sex forced upon someone, we all, I think, can agree is absolutely unacceptable. What happens when it happens, though? What do we do with people? Do we put them in jail and throw away the key? Her view is no. So in an upcoming episode, I encourage everyone to, uh, to listen to what Marley Liss has to say. I'm also interested, Nikki, in what you have to offer around consent, because it's a huge area. It's a capital C yeah. word, and it's, it's important, isn't it? It's so important, yeah. I got into the field of sex education um, by doing consent workshops at high schools and universities. I work for Mount Sinai Hospital in their sexual violence intervention program, and my job was to sort of deliver these workshops in schools, and I think that what I learned through that is how vast the gray area of consent is. So a lot of the time, sometimes it's malicious people that want power and that's one thing, but I think there is also this middle ground because our culture and the way we talk about consent is changing. So in the nineties, it was kind of like no means no. And that was sort of implied where if someone doesn't want sex, they will clearly state it out loud and that's it. But since then we've learned more about the neurobiology of trauma and how if someone's in a moment where they feel out of control or they feel scared, sometimes their voice doesn't work. An example of that is like if someone is getting sexually assaulted in a dorm room and their friend is literally on the bunk above them, uh, they might not be able to call out to them. And I think back in the day, they would be like, well, clearly it's not sexual assault if their friend was in the room, right? But it's like now that we understand the way the brain works, the frontal lobes, the conscious, thoughtful part of the brain just turns off when you're in a moment of trauma. And it's this old hindbrain part that takes over, which is really the part of the brain that wants you to do whatever you can to survive. For many of us, the response is freeze. So often when we're in these moments, we just freeze up and we can't move. We're understanding this more. And I think that's really helpful, even just the way like the college orientations are. They only give us an hour, which is ridiculous. I think it kind of should be like at least a full day workshop to get into it. But it's like understanding more about how it works and also understanding the power of pressure. So during the workshop, I often ask someone like, hey, can I borrow your pen? And I ask them to say no. And then I'm like, hey, can I borrow your pen? No. Can I borrow your pen? No. Can I borrow your pen? No. And it seems like ridiculous to ask someone more than once to borrow the pen. But then when it comes to sex, it's still kind of normal to be like, hey, you want to fuck? What about now? What about now? And knowing that people might say yes the fourth time, not because they genuinely want to have sex, but because they feel the pressure and they feel like if you don't say yes, they're going to do it anyway. But I do think overall, we're slowly going in a better direction. What else has been on your mind lately that you'd like to, uh, that you'd like to impart in terms mm -hmm. of some wisdom or some new information you've, you've discovered that is kind of uh, top of mind these days in your in your work? Yeah, that's a good question. So I just created something that I think is pretty fun. It's a yes, no, maybe list. So it's something that couples can go through together or individuals can go through. And it's just basically an extensive list of sexual behaviors, activities, dynamics that couples can go through. Because oftentimes in my first session with a couple, we discussed a little bit about their sexual routine and like a question like, what are you into? Which can be terrifying. That could be like the scariest thing anyone could ask them. So this tool is for couples to sort of go through it. And for each thing, maybe it's like nipple play. You go through it and you're like, 
have I tried this before? Would I be interested in trying it? And what would make this dynamic sexy for me? So would I prefer like a hard twist of the nipple or like a gentle touch? So that is available for free on my website if you sign up for my mailing list. And I think it's just sort of like a fun way for couples to sort of talk about what it is that they could explore together and figure out how to push their boundaries in a way that's that both couples are at least maybe interested in. And ideally, they're both that. into it. Yeah. And tell us the quickest way to get to more about you. Yeah. So you could check out my website. It's N-I-K-I-D-A-V-I-S-F.com. On there, if you sign up for my mailing list, you'll receive a complimentary yes, no, maybe list. I also uh, post a lot on Instagram at Miss Bloom Sex Educator, spelled M-I-S-S. Yeah, I have events coming up around the city, as you mentioned. And also uh, for folks that are listening today and are interested in trying a coaching session, either as an individual or as a couple, I can offer you a 25% off your first session to just give it a go and see if we jive together. Nikki Davis F. Nikki Davis Fainbloom. I'm so glad that you're here. I'd love to have you on again down the road. This is a long-term thing, the Blue Hotel Podcast. We're here because we want to strengthen people's relationships and we want to give a positive perspective to pleasure and to sexuality. And you were a huge part of it today in this episode. So thank you, Nikki. Huh. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. I love your thoughts and perspectives and just really thoughtful questions. She did it right at the Blue Hotel. She did it right at the Blue Hotel. And coming up in a second here, the way we climax each episode of the Blue Hotel podcast, an adult bedtime story written and narrated by yours truly. And this time it's an encore presentation of a dirty, not-so-little story. It's a long one because these two are busy. Aiden and Angela are going to head downtown and get into some good, dirty fun. You remember when some people's kids and even some adults would call girls sluts? And remember the nearest equivalent for the guys? Wasn't it stud? Which was considered a compliment. Or player, which wasn't, but neither had anywhere near the negative connotation that we lavished upon women. With sluts, women who exercised their sexual freedoms and desires were demonized as that. The patriarchy at work, evidently. Less so with younger people now, I think, but still. As my sexually liberated and funny friend, who happens to be a woman, likes to say, what's wrong with sluts? Speaking of words and intentions, remember that infamous list? As revealed by George Carlin in the early 70s, the notorious seven words you can't say on television. I think it was 12 when I first heard them on an album. They've been etched in my mind ever since, and in order. Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. And the joke was that tits didn't even belong. Sounded like a snack, as George Carlin put it. And he noted those hard consonants of cocksucker and motherfucker that made those two words especially maligned. The idea that the sound of a word made it that much badder. Motherfucker was something boys and men said and say, mindlessly, typically. Usually has nothing to do with mothers or the fucking of same. The other one, a schoolyard favorite and used by some people's kids of all ages, from your friends to your best friend, your brother, the kids you got along with and the kids you didn't. Boys, girls, men, women, teachers, everyone, including strangers. 
indiscriminately subject to being called cocksucker. And eventually, when boys became aware of what they were actually saying, it surely gave them pause to ponder because that was something they might want to know more about. You mean that people put their mouths there? At the end of the day, it's a word that, like its cousin, slut, cocksucker was never going to become a term of endearment. But where would we be without them? Guys, of course, love when their partner is really good at it. But how many have had a tough time wrapping their head around how they became so skilled at it? Seems we've come full circle. Sluts, cocksuckers. Of course, the number one prerequisite to being a good cocksucker is liking to do it. And it helps to have a great partner. Enter Aiden and Angela. They talk a lot together about sluts and cocks and cocksuckers. He gave her a greater appreciation for all of it. Because together they're mentally and physically on fire. They talk about anything and everything. Because intimacy is that. Angela went and bought a big, thick book called Tom of Finland Double XL, a collector's edition with over a thousand images, covering six decades of the career of the artist known as Tom of Finland, intended to give the world a greater appreciation of the eroticism of the work and the impact it would have. It's essentially a big, thick book full of hot drawings, featuring stylized, masculine characters, men with exaggerated physical features, wearing tight clothing and sometimes less clothing. Aiden had first seen the art of Tom Finland in shops in Toronto's gay village, and he turned Angela onto it. The big book of Tom sits on the table in their reading nook off the master bedroom. They'll flip to different pages in the morning and then leave them to the other one to see. Many of Tom's drawings depict the post-war biker subculture and its rebellion and its unapologetic attitude. Lots of leather and denim. When the art of Tom of Finland came out, it was in stark contrast to the then-prevailing stereotypes, like the ones Aidan's and most kids' dads had perpetuated, that of the gay man as an effeminate sissy. But these boys were built, and they weren't to be messed with unless you were a lover and a fan of cocks that boldly bulged beneath trousers. They were showers and growers. And Tom of Finland would become friends with famed New York photographer Robert Maplethorpe, also known for his affinity for clothed and unclothed men. Perhaps none more legendary than the shot titled Man in Polyester Suit, taken in 1980 of a dark-skinned man posed in matching blazer, vest, and pants, filling the frame from mid-chest to just above the knee, not quite facing the camera, arms at his side, hands open, zipper open too, out of which hangs his veiny, uncut big cock. Two of Mablethorpe's last relationships were indeed with black men. His fascination with their sexuality was something Angela and Aidan also had in common. Which brings us to the first Tuesday of every month at a place unlike Cheers. This is one where everybody doesn't know your name. At the Palms, the first Tuesday of each month is themed to cater to women who in fact take pleasure in the company of multiple men. Aidan and Angela were salivating at the thought of going. They work scenarios into their lovemaking and their dirty talk. And a few times a year, they set their fantasies in motion. She'd been thinking about what to wear, her closet filled with every sort of outfit, and for this place, all access was a priority. She attempted to narrow it down to a couple of her favorites. Black leather always in season, she has a harness that hugs her ribs and neck, 
with a belt-like strap below her tits, connected with a vertical strap in between, rising up to meet a choker, and two vertical straps of soft, wide leather in back from the belt to the neck. It fully exposed her breasts, and the accompanying bottoms, leather garters with crisscross straps that frame the curves of her ass, and meet on a big silver O-ring at the small of her back, straps in the front that frame the V of her crotch, with more silver rings on her hips and thighs. So she'd wear that, or perhaps a fishnet bodysuit, crotchless allowing access front and back, and with netting that extended everywhere else. But with a little creativity, access to her tits could be gained. And so on the Monday night, Angela tried on the leather set, just to feel it on her body, to see if the straps she'd adjusted last time felt right still, and they did, hugging her firmly and making her wet thinking about tomorrow night. She loved the way it felt and the way it looked, and then she took it off and put on the fishnets. And just as she did, Aiden came down the hall and toward the bedroom, and Angela filled the doorway with her body, raising her hands to the inside top of the doorframe and spreading her legs, the sight of which sent Aiden's cock northbound. Then his lips met hers, and the middle finger of his left hand slid up and in as the palm of his hand cupped the bold black triangle of the hair above, and he fucked her good with one and then two pumping fingers, and she lifted and dropped her hungry pussy up and down on them. And she knew she could come this way, but better still, another way. So she gave him a look and a sound he knew well. She needed cock now. And so he withdrew his fingers and slid them into her mouth, and she sucked the taste of her cunt from them. And then he needed access to those tits, sticking one finger on each hand in a hole of the fishnets, and pulling and ripping, openings big enough for his hands and his mouth. And he tongued her tits and sucked them and tweaked her nipples with a pressure that sent shockwaves directly between her legs. Angela let her hands fall from above the door and reached her arms around him and lifted her body and legs wrapped behind his ass and he slid his cock inside her and he tossed her up and down a few pumps. Then he walked her back and lowered her onto the bed and she spread her legs good and wide and he drove into her deep and slow, his feet gripping and pushing on the hardwood floor, his pelvis rotating and grinding and he kept that up until she climaxed with a shudder. He stayed inside her while her body came to rest. And then she got on all fours as he grabbed the base of his cock and parted her lips and slid inside and took the dark mane of thick hair and twisted it into a ponytail and gripped it with one hand. She loved the way he pulled her hair. It made her scalp tingle. And so he tugged harder and she arched her back and his eyes fell to the view of his cock sliding in deep and pulling back until everything but its swollen head was visible, and after nine or ten good strokes, she wanted to be on her back to feel the weight of him. So she flipped over, and when she said do it, he knew what she meant. He pulled out and moved his body up to her mouth, and she took the whole load, and she swallowed every last drop. And that's how Angela decided what she'd be wearing tomorrow night. <laughs> the fishnets would come out again, but only at home. So back into the closet they went, and the leather remained at the ready. Aiden collapsed on his back beside Angela and they talked a bit. One of the things she marveled at and loved about her man was how 90 seconds later, like clockwork, he was as hard as a rock again. It reminded her what her guy friend had told her on the ski lift one day about every guy over 40 using Viagra. She hadn't the heart to break it to him. That all Aiden needed was the sight of her mouth, her ass, her legs, her feet, or the sound of her voice. She was his Viagra. 
Then Angela said, hit me baby one more time, giggling and adding, open up my ass. And so he grabbed the coconut oil out of the nightstand and scooped out a few fingers full and lubed up his cock from balls to tip and laid on his side, facing her back. He raised her left leg and it bent as one foot dangled the way it did. Slowly in, he slid a bit to start and she breathed deeply and relaxed. And he inched his way deeper until he was all the way in and then he stroked slowly and it always took her a bit by surprise how it went from there's no way that thing's going in my ass to fuck I like you there. And soon she was filled with another load of cum in her ass. Now, Tuesday had come. He had studio sessions and she had appointments downtown, including lunch with her best friend, who always wanted to know what trouble Angela was getting into lately. She laughed and said, it's Palm Tuesday, and you know what that means. I do, said Amy. I told you about it. Aiden and I keep missing it the first Tuesday of the month at the Palms. All the horny studs come out to play hoping to be invited across the red line. Right, said Amy. Didn't you go last year and meet somebody really hot? God, yes, Angela started to fill her in about the Tuesday. She and Aiden showed up around 10.30 and things were in full swing. They made their way to the third floor, filled with leather beds of all sorts, and Aiden took her to the nook in the corner, and no sooner had he sat his ass down, she straddled him with her back to the room and they started kissing. And so it was Aiden who had the view of the growing crowd of men standing shoulder to shoulder just beyond the red tape on the floor that meant do not cross unless invited. Some of the more modest guys were wrapped in white towels provided upon entry. Some were holding theirs and their cocks in their other hand. And then what, said Amy. And then I got on my knees so my back was still toward them and Aiden sat back like a king while I blew him. Amy loved living vicariously through Angela and prompted her to continue. Well, we just got there, and I wasn't about to make him come with my mouth, so soon I stood up and turned around and sat back down on his cock, did some deep knee bends for the boys to watch, and Aiden scanned the lineup and suddenly leaned in and said, right-hand side, the tall one. And while he still had his towel wrapped around his body, he had one hand inside of it. And from the cute and confident grin, we were both pretty sure he was packing, and so sight unseen, he motioned for him to come across the line. And Taldark dropped his towel, and sure enough, he was hung. And I quickly discovered his ass was plump and firm like Aiden's, reaching around with my right arm and giving it a grip and a slap. And then I couldn't help myself. I dropped down with my mouth, played with the tip of his cock between my lips, and cupped the stranger's balls with my other hand, and we got into a nice little rhythm, the three of us. We kept it slow and easy, and then feeling like putting on some more of a show, the three of us positioned ourselves on the leather bed, so I was on all fours. Aiden pushed back inside of me from behind while Taldark, kneeling now, got his cock sucked some more. Amy responded, so how do you top all that tonight? Angela said, you never know who's going to show up, and the great news is that Aiden and I have a good time no matter who does or doesn't. Just being there and playing, exhibitionists that we are. What used to be cheap Tuesday movie date night had become hot Tuesday let's go and get fucked night. It had actually been so long since they'd made a Tuesday evening. Angela said to Amy, I'm going to get all dulled up tonight. The two friends said their goodbyes and they headed back to work. Angela had deadlines. She looked at the evening ahead as the big, fat, juicy reward for meeting them. Middle of the evening, Aiden pulled the car around, went in the front door to get Angela, wrapped as she was in straps of black leather, 
her nipples exposed and already hard at the thought of the evening ahead. Below the straps and rings in the luscious mound beneath, on which his eyes feasted, after catching her devilish grin and she reached for an overcoat. Off they went, and as he drove, she unbuttoned her coat, and he reached over with his right hand and two fingers drew some of the juice from inside of her. He put it in her mouth first and then drew some more and took it for himself. Her cunt always tasted like sweet nectar, and when at her most stimulated, the juice that propelled from deep within her was the most delicious he'd ever tasted. But not so fast. They checked in, went upstairs, shared a locker into which Angela's coat and all of Aiden's clothes went. He took a towel and wrapped it around him. For now, they tripped up one more floor where they made a right at the top of the stairs to sit at the bar for a celebratory start of the night, vodka, extra olives. They sat side by side, back to the bar, and raised their glasses at the same time and said, to us, the scenes that had played out in this room, the ultimate spot for the exhibitionist and voyeur alike, with its two round stage areas on which Hayden had properly fucked Angela's mouth and her cunt to the delight of onlookers more than once. As they sipped away, men and women were coming up the stairs, a handful to the bar, the rest to the big room to play. The first Tuesday of the month was the only night men were allowed to check in solo, and so the place was slowly filling with solo men, men in little gangs, and solo women and girls with girls and couples, like Aidan and Angela. She had no interest in ever coming alone, although the scenario was a popular one in her and Aidan's fantasies. When they'd first met, she had yet to embrace or even really encounter a man whose bedroom talk included fantasies about her with lovers of past or lovers imagined. Aidan explained how it was like the images that played in his mind when he masturbated. It was never him in those scenarios with her. That was too familiar. He imagined her with strangers, being taken roughly but willingly, often by several men, and he always came hard thinking about it. They'd finished their drinks and stood, strode their bodies out of the bar and into the big room where the other bodies reclined, while others stood behind the red line of the floor that surrounded every leather bed, couch, and lounger. It was like watching live porn, and for some it was their chance to guest star in somebody else's scene. Aidan and Angela walked about more slowly now. They noticed upon the bed in the shadows of the nook where they'd often played the curves of a crimson-haired, lily-white-skinned beauty, and as they got a bit closer, her red lips were wrapped round the cock of a silver fox, while another was working her between her legs orally. Then Angela's head turned and scanned the room, and she took Aidan's hand and said, Come. They headed toward the king-sized, round leather bed that was occupied with two couples that were fucking side by side. Both women were on top of their men. Their feet were planted and they were working their legs as they rose and dropped onto stiff cocks, mirroring one another's moves and pace. Synchronized fucking was a thing, apparently. And near them was a cherry-red, shiny, faux-leather, deep-seated, low-back love seat. Angela grinned and said, Here, let's take this. Sit. Aiden did as she dropped to her knees, needing to smell his cock and to suck it. Aiden's attention was split between the top of her head and the sight of his cock appearing and disappearing in her mouth, and the couples on the big bed. The two women had just stood and traded places and dropped down on the other cock. And then two tall, dark, handsome, naked, swinging dicks were slowly approaching. They stopped together just shy of the red tape. 
inches behind Angela's plump ass. While she continued sucking Aiden's cock, and they started stroking themselves as they watched. Their eyes looked hungry, but they were also friendly and confident. Their swagger was cool, not arrogant or entitled. That was always the vibe, and it made coming here to play a pleasure. Nobody crossed the line unless invited. Aiden's cock grew that much bigger watching these two marvel at the motion of Angela's head and hands. The way she gripped under his balls with one hand and worked the other in a corkscrew motion on a shaft and the way she spit on his cock to keep it well lubed. They continued stroking while moving to the left and right of the love seat so they could get a better view. Now Angela could see them watching her handiwork, which compelled her to drop one of her hands to feel her own wetness as she fingered her hole and imagined what Aiden was also imagining. Her eyes met his, and he raised his eyebrows twice, and she gripped his cock that much harder with her mouth in response, confirming that they were of the same mind. And so it began, with Angela standing up and turning around and dropping down in Aiden's cock, sitting still for a moment and looking left and right, the two men returning to where they'd first been standing, her mouth precisely at the height of their cocks, and so she engaged her knees and slowly rode Aiden's cock, and she gripped the two black cocks and took the one on the right into her mouth and soon all three of them were feeling the sensation of tightness upon them and the rise and fall of Angela's weight on them and the tension of her grip and her hand and her mouth and her cunt. After too much of that good thing, she switched it up so both of the new friends could know how her mouth and tongue could work a hard cock. These two had generous girths like Aiden. One was a touch longer and one a touch shorter. Goldilocks was in her glory, riding her man just right. As she fucked and stroked and sucked, she was reminded of the thing she and Aiden loved most about one another. They were both dirty and loyal. They agreed to what they had agreed, to play as hard and as wild as they wanted together. Aiden loved seeing Angela suck cock, especially when she was riding his. As she sucked one and stroked the other, the one with the bigger of the two cocks was grinning and turning his attention to Aiden. And holding it, Aiden sensed what it meant and nodded his head up and down, confirming that he was down with what Longcock might be thinking. Angela sensed it too and released him, then used both of her hands to work the balls and shaft of the other one that was in her mouth. And two seconds later, Aiden's hand was working the other one as Longcock propped one leg on the couch and angled his body so Aiden's mouth could meet it. Now his mouth was full and bobbing on thick, stiff blackness, and the foursome settled into a nice little rhythm, filling and stretching three hungry holes. There was no way Angela's legs weren't on fire from lifting and falling on Aiden for the last twenty minutes or so. So she rose from his cock, and still holding her new friend in her hand, she told him, we're going to need this again in a minute. And as he resumed stroking himself, she laid herself on the bed on her side, reaching for the little jar of lube and scooping a bit out, lathering Aiden's cock, glistening as it was with her wetness. But now it was really ready for the tightness of her ass, which he took, skewering her slowly. And then when she was comfortable, they rolled so that she was face up on top of his chest, with ass full and her cunt wet and ripe and waiting. 
Aiden's mouth still happily working long cock, Angela spread her legs wide, pressing the balls of her feet down on Aiden's legs. When the space between her legs was soon to be taken as the other black cock came forward, its sizable throbbing head had everyone's attention, including the crowd of men with their cocks in their hands beyond the red line. Angela's cunt lips were parted and the thick shaft slid inside her, and like a piston started pumping, alternating with Aiden's pumping into her ass. It felt so fucking good, she thought. The men would graduate from slow ride to mid-tempo. And when they settled into that gear, what Angela craved was a third cock for her mouth. All she had to do was turn her head and Aiden gave up long cock to her waiting lips, sharing his caring. And the double black on double white fuck machine pumped. And the purring of earlier had heightened to the deep man moans. And the sounds that came out of Angela... She'd never taken this much cock inside of her body at once, and it drove her mad. One sliding almost all the way out as the other drove all the way in. And then they pumped in and out of her cunt and ass at the very same time. She let them decide how to best work her together. While she controlled the depth of long cock in her mouth by gripping it at the base so as not to choke on it. Her fingers were stretched and only managed to get just more than halfway around his girth. While Aiden watched intently as she sucked... Then she directed into his waiting mouth again, so she could focus all of her attention down below. Her face was completely flush, her neck muscles strained and her heart thumping, and just when it couldn't get any more intense, Aiden pulled out of her ass, and his cock squeezed itself into her cunt alongside the black shaft, and they pumped together, stretching her and driving her, and not one but two guys on the other side of the red tape line stroked themselves to orgasm. And Angela, with her clit now being worked, and her G-spot stimulated from the hot rod on top, screamed as her body shuddered and shook, and she gushed all over the two cocks. They withdrew from her cunt and her ass and stood before her. Joined by Longcock, all three in anticipation of the famous final scene, Aiden took charge and got in back of the love seat and reached for Angela's ankles and pulled them back. Her legs were now in the widest V, her swollen cunt lips red and soaked, and Longcock finally got his turn to penetrate them. His bulging head entered and dove deep for seven strong strokes before he had to pull out, and he shot his load and it streamed from just below her neck right down to her belly button. She scooped some of it up and rubbed it on her nipples. Now it was his friend's turn. He pushed his black shaft into her and managed ten good strong pumps before he withdrew, and he shot it so hard it landed on her chin. Her tongue came out and licked a bit of it, as if she were licking delicious ice cream, and then the new friends graciously made their exit. Aiden and Angela stood and held hands as onlookers smiled and stopped short of cheering. Someone breached the red tape line only to come and clean up, to make room for more willing participants. The couple headed toward the bar and drank cold water, breathing deeply, and Angela, in an oh-my-God voice, said, Aiden, you haven't come yet. I can take more. you got to fill me. So he led her to one of the tall stools on the stage, and he sat her on it, dropping to his knees because he needed to taste what had gone inside of her. He sucked her cunt, and he licked her clit for a while, and it tasted great. Then he rose up and gripped the back of the seat and entered her, and 
She wrapped her legs around his back, and he drove it home, the sound of the stool lifting and falling and banging on the hardwood floor like a drum. And it was only when Angela said, Come inside me, that he exploded, yelling her name as he did. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. Please take me by to the Blue Hotel. The Blue Hotel Podcast, just about every Thursday at midnight Eastern. Follow, listen, enjoy, rate, review, share, repeat. Till next time, I'm Jeff Woods. to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.